Amen. Please be seated. The full passage that I'm going to read and talk about this morning. So, um, 1 Timothy 6, we'll look at verses 3 through 19 this morning. And I know I keep mentioning it uh, through this series, but it really is amazing that you're here again. Um, Good Americans coming back to church for more on the principles of treasuring God's kingdom that runs straight against what being a good American means, uh, good American sensibilities. Um, It it really is a miracle that... (laughs) It sounds like a joke. It's no joke. Uh, it's, it's a miracle that you're here for a few weeks in a row to hear about what the Bible says, what about Jesus says about um, money. Jesus talked about this stuff and had people walking away from him. Him. God on earth. God in the flesh. God looking you in the eyes out of compassion, out of love, talking to you about money, and we walked away from him. People walked away from him. Um, Money's always had a real grip on people. It's always had a grip, especially probably in our culture. It's got a real grip on us. Our understanding of our wealth and our connection to our wealth is usually distorted. And even talking about gospel freedom, that's what Jesus is talking about when he addresses the subject. Even talking about gospel freedom concerning our wealth ends up offending people. So... I mean, I'm quite aware of the fact that it's a touchy subject, that we're rocking the boat, kicking the hornet's nest, so to speak, not the kind of uh, sermon people want to show up for if you're visitors. Um, Doing this is something you just don't do. Addressing this topic is just something you don't do unless you've got good reason to do it. Do you think we have good reason to do it? I say we do because we've got the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, clearly revealed to us, and that's reason enough to turn anyone's life completely upside down, to come after you to turn your life completely upside down. For the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's reason enough. And that's what we're here for, after all. It's an encounter with God's love, the God who is love. It's an encounter with him and with his real love. Um, And it's the kind of love that changes us at the core so that everything becomes new. So we've got to figure out how the gospel changes us with regard to our wealth because there really is hardly any bigger idol in the history of the world or in our lives or in this culture than wealth. So that's what we're going to talk about again this morning. And and I think last week will be the last week in the series. I could almost promise that. (laughs) Um, Let's pray and then we'll talk about it from the scripture. Father, you're good to us. We can call you Father because you've revealed yourself to us in the person of your Son, and you've, you've given us even the right to call you our Father in a, um, in a special way because we come to you through Jesus Christ. So we know that your intentions toward us are good. We know that <clears throat> when you give um, Christ, when you give your Spirit, when you give your Word, the Holy Scriptures, the Gospel, that it's meant for our good. So we pray that as we sit and hear, as we read, as we listen, as we pay attention, we would be mindful always of the fact that your intentions toward us are good, and it it really is for our good, even if our lives are turned upside down. So we pray that you would make us um, 
receptive to your word, to your love this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's a um, passage uh, largely addressed, well, it's addressed directly to Timothy, who's the pastor of a church in Ephesus, and calling Timothy to address people who are rich or who want to be rich. It's, it's about being rich or about the desire to be rich, right? Do you feel rich? Do you feel rich? I'm pretty sure everyone in this room is, is top 2% of the world rich. Almost could guarantee. You go to the, one of those websites, um, it's a wealth calculator, and you plug in your salary, and probably everybody in this room is going to be top 2% of the world, some of us the top 0.1%. Realistically, some of us in this room top 0.1% of wealth in the world or better. So 
when I ask you the question, do you feel rich? And you have a hard time answering that. And maybe there's some dissonance between the way you feel and kind of the reality of it. Why is that? Why, why don't you feel rich? It seems to be uh, about our self-perception. And it's about our desires. That's what Paul's going on and on about here in this passage is our desires. We want. And we want more. That's really the point. We want more. Um, <clears throat> how many of you grew up with uh, that wholesome family television show, The Simpsons? <laughs> or at least have seen it, <clears throat> know what it's about. I can't do a very good Homer Simpson impression, but there's this one episode uh, where he's talking to Mr. Burns, who is his wealthy employer. He basically owns everything, Mr. Burns, and he says, Mr. Burns, you're the richest man I know. Now, unfortunately, I can do a Mr. Burns impression. <laughs> Homer says, Mr. Burns, you're the richest man I know. Yes, and I'd trade it all for a little more. That's <laughs> what he says. I'd trade it all for a little more. <laughs> right? <clears throat> more. Um, <clears throat> since we don't have more, since actually you can't have more, kind of a philosophically unattainable thing. Since we don't have more, we feel we don't have enough. That's the way we feel. We feel we don't have enough. And if we don't have enough, then how could we feel rich? Or how could we be rich? Because we must not be rich because we imagine if we were rich, we'd feel like it was enough and we wouldn't want more. Isn't that kind of the underlying assumptions. We must not be rich. Well, we'd like to think that if we were objectively rich, if we were verifiably rich, then we'd be satisfied. We'd like to think that then we would be content. Um, I can assure you, you are objectively, verifiably rich in terms of this world's possessions. I can assure you that that is the case. So the question seems really to be, are you content? Are you content? Why or why not? Let's just assume that you're a normal American. You should assume that. And the answer to the question, are you content, is no. No, you're not. Uh, here Paul says about Christians that if we have food and clothing, and that word clothing, uh, really, it, it also includes the idea of shelter, it's not just food and clothing, but shelter also. Um, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That seems really basic. That seems really minimal. With these we'll be content. So you don't need a lot of money to be content, to not feel like you need more, you want more. Right? You don't need a lot of money to be content, just like you don't need a lot of money to be truly generous. You don't need a lot of money. You don't have to be, you don't have to have more and have that idea of what it means to be rich. You don't have to have that to be content or generous. Um, Tim Challies uh, got this from uh, Jennifer Walcott this week. Um, he wrote a little article on, on uh, the desire for, for wealth, the desire to be rich. He says, you already have enough to be as generous 
or as stingy as you would be with billions. If you aren't being generous today with modest wealth, there's no reason to think you'd be generous tomorrow with abundant wealth. There's no reason. No reason to think that. As long as you are not absolutely destitute, you can be content. As long as you're not absolutely destitute, you can be generous. Um, But we aren't. We're not. Because of our broken understanding of wealth and our broken connection to our wealth, in our hearts, we hold it as an ultimate source of happiness. We hold wealth and money in our hearts as an ultimate source of our happiness Just a little more, just a little more would be enough. Just a little more. That's the way we feel. But that's entirely imaginary because no one has ever, ever been ultimately happy because of their wealth. No one. So this is an imaginary, this is a dream to have wealth as the ultimate source of your happiness. Ecclesiastes 5 says that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. You look at your wealth, there's no source of contentment. Your wealth doesn't free you up to be content or generous. But we trust it anyway, and we love it anyway. It's not just secular people who do this. It's been a problem in the church throughout history. Paul's talking here, the first couple verses of our passage, he's talking about false teachers in the early church, and George Knight the third. He's a commentator on this, and he sums it up uh, fairly well. He says that the indictment of the false teachers, the indictment that stands against them, <clears throat> begins with their heterodoxy. And that's just a word that means false teaching. They're teaching something other than the gospel that the, that, um, the apostles are teaching. It begins with their heterodoxy, which is correlated with their conceit and lack of real understanding and their sick interest in mere controversy turns to the maliciousness of life that flows from these characteristics, roots all this in spiritual blindness, and ends with their materialistic motivations. That's kind of what's at the root of it all. Materialistic motivations make for an entirely broken life and ministry, in the case of these false teachers. Materialistic motivations. These people imagine, he says, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. That godliness is a means of gain. That is, they promote the idea of religion, a life lived before the face of God. They promote the idea that a life of religion will get you the ultimate prize of wealth gain, financial gain, right? So it's kind of a proto, uh, proto-prosperity gospel thing. We see it when you turn on the TV and you're flipping through those channels and there's like 10 of them up there in the 30s and 40s or whatever, wherever they are on the television spectrum, you turn on the TV, you're going to get a prosperity gospel preacher probably. And, uh, and this is like the beginnings of that. They tell you that by living a good life, God will reward you with the thing that you think will make you deeply happy. Financial gain. That's pretty subtle. It's pretty subtle. These people, Paul says, are characterized by constant friction with other people. There's a whole list of ways in which these people cannot get along with other people, right? Because their ultimate love is money. And in a society of people whose ultimate love is money, 
It's everyone for himself, everyone for herself. If our ultimate love is money, money is a, is a God for selfish people. It's the God chosen by selfish people. Um, money is a God that will never bring you real unity between people. Money doesn't provide that kind of unity. <clears throat> the love of money crowds out, actually, the true love of other people. So, in fact, uh, just so you don't get the wrong idea, it's not money in and of itself that's evil. It's not the money. It's not a problem with the money. It's the love of money. It's our view of it. It's our connection to it. This problem is here, Jesus says. Money is actually a good thing. Lots of money, great thing. It's hard for us to believe that. We want to blame the problems in our lives on the money itself. That's not where the blame lies. Money is a good thing. It's not even just a neutral thing. It's a good thing, but it's the desire for money. It's, this is all language in the text here. It's the desire for money. It's the craving of money. It's the setting of your hope on money. It's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. Not every single evil, but all kinds. Um, John Stott is another commentator. <clears throat> he, he gives you a fairly good introductory list in his uh, commentary on <clears throat> what, are, what are some of the kinds of evil that money is a root cause of. Selfish greed, cheating, fraud, perjury, robbery, envy, quarreling, hatred, violence, Murder, marriages of convenience, perversions of justice, drug pushing, pornography sales, blackmail, the exploitation of the weak, the neglect of good causes, the betrayal of friends, worry, remorse, the pangs of a disregarded conscience, despair. The love of money leads to these things. These are just some of the evil things resulting from a heart that's looking to hope in money. A heart that's fixed on it. People are not content, <clears throat> which translates into wanting more money, which means pretty much the opposite of loving generosity, doesn't it? That's what it means. You want more for yourself, it means the opposite of loving generosity because we have an insatiable craving in our hearts. And that craving ultimately is for the love of God. It's for the love of God, but we're deeply, pre-consciously convinced that we'll never have that. We're convinced at a very deep level, without even thinking about it, we're never going to have what we really need. So how can we be free of this? We put money in God's place. We turn our desires to it and we, ho we hope in it. How can we be free of that? How can that connection to money be broken? How can our hearts be fixed? How can we be free? How can we be actually content and get right perspective on our wealth and the use of it, not be so desperately connected to it and escape the love of it and be free to truly love others and be generous to others and experience real unity with others, real relationship? not constant friction, be free from the friction, 
How can we be generous no matter what our in income level is? How can we be content whatever our income level is? Um, I know I've mentioned before Thomas Chalmers, he's a Puritan, he's had this, um, it's kind of like an article length back when it seems like they only wrote books. Maybe it was a sermon, I don't remember, but The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That's the title of it by Thomas Chalmers. You can look it up, it's online for free. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what he basically says in that is that it's, it's not enough just to stop loving money. You can't look at the, the connection that you have with money and say, i got to stop that. It's not enough to somehow stoically conquer the cravings, to somehow just shut off your, the valve of your hope that's flowing toward money. It's not enough. You can't do it. It doesn't work. That love has to be replaced by a greater love, the expulsive power of a new affection, a hotter love, an infinite love, an eternal love, right? The object of your love must be greater, must be infinitely worthy, must be eternally guaranteed to you. Then, then your love of money will be expelled, expelled from your heart. So to be freed from the love of money and from the lack of contentment and generosity that that brings, you need to be captivated by the one that Paul's talking about here in the middle of the passage when he he says to Timothy, flee these things and pursue righteousness and godliness and peace and pursue it all in, in this one, in this person, in this God, in the one who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to whom is honor and eternal dominion. Pursue him. Set your heart on him. The true God has to be your God. He's the only God big enough and wonderful enough to command your love. He has to command your love and he has to command your cravings. And he has to be the one that you look to him for your hopes to be fulfilled and for your contentment. And to know this God means to know him as he's given himself to you. Because he has given himself to you in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul says in another place, which we actually read uh, in our offering reading from Philippians chapter 4, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We know the ups and downs that Paul experienced, uh, whether I'm being beaten, stoned, left outside the city gates for dead, whatever situation, I don't think he's exaggerating. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He can face poverty, which tempts you to want to do things like steal and be envious. And he can face great wealth, which tempts you to things like feeling self-sufficient not needing God, not being thankful to God, and still being stingy and holding on to your wealth for yourself. He knows how to face those circumstances in his life because Jesus Christ is the one who strengthens him. Jesus Christ is the one who makes contentment possible. He's the one who makes contentment with generosity possible. Him and only him. Do you want to be content? 
then look to Jesus, who's the Lord of glory. That's the picture that we're given here in, in this passage. Paul is painting a glorious picture of this Lord. He's the Lord of glory who suffered absolute destitution. Not just poverty. Not just bare, minimal necessity for contentment in his life. He went below that. He suffered absolute destitution for you. He went homeless and hungry for you. And at the end, when he had only his robe, they stripped that away from him too. And he went to the the extreme, utter end of destitution for you. He left this world with nothing. He left this world with absolutely nothing so that you might have everything forever in your relationship with God that's been restored as a gift. He left this world with nothing so that you could have everything, no matter your income level. First Corinthians 3, Paul says, all things are yours. All things, whether the world or life or death. Do you know you owned death? Or the present or future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. It's because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because of his voluntarily taking on abject poverty, absolute destitution, rock bottom, doesn't get lower than that. Because of his taking that on voluntarily, because everything was taken away from him, everything has been given to you as you now belong to him. As you now belong to him and to God, you have God as your father because of Jesus. This God always takes care of his children. Always does. He always takes care of his children and he gives you far more than you need. He has given you far more than you need and he gives it to you for your pleasure, for your enjoyment. Paul's not advocating in this passage or anywhere else, he is not advocating poverty for its own sake. He's not saying that it is evil to be rich or evil to properly enjoy material wealth. He says earlier in his letter to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 4, everything created by God is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Everything is good. He gave it to you for your pleasure. John Stott Again, said, we're not to exchange materialism for asceticism. God is a generous creator who wants us to appreciate the good gifts of creation. If we consider it right to adopt an economic lifestyle lower than we could command, it will be out of solidarity with the poor and not because we judge the possession of material things to be wrong in itself. If you choose to live at, an income, at, a, at a level below what your actual income level is because of your generosity to the poor, if you choose to live at that level, it's because of your solidarity with the poor. Not because you just think it's good to get rid of material things and wealth. It's because of your solidarity, out of solidarity with the poor. That sounds like Boaz, whom Brian read about in Ruth chapter 2, our Old Testament reading. Boaz is rich. And he is absolutely generous. 
He's the generous rich. He's friendly. He's joyful. He doesn't act haughty or condescending. Right? You feel like he treats even his employees, his workers working in the field like friends when he greets them. He's friendly and joyful. He provides for those in need, those he just met. He provides abundantly for them. Out of solidarity with the poor. Sounds like Job, actually. Um, you should go read Job. It's a bit of a long book. It's a beautiful book. Um, Job in uh, chapters 29 through 31, uh, we discover that he was um, exceedingly generous to all kinds of people, the poor, the broken, the marginalized in society, anyone who had any form of need at all, Job was there to meet those needs. Right? He says that he welcomed the fatherless, the orphans, by his side when he was like a teenager. He lived with these children and they treated him like a father. He was like a father to them. And he had the, the widow at his table. Out of solidarity with the poor sounds like Jesus. Yeah. Sounds like Jesus. God himself expresses everywhere, everywhere, his solidarity with the poor. Not just a kind of a condescending generosity. Real solidarity with them. He names himself. He declares his identity to be the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. That's who God identifies himself as. And when he came into the world as a human being, in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, he actually came literally as a poor man. He wasn't faking poverty. He really was a poor man. When God came into the world, he became a poor man. A poor man who went and he encountered this, uh, this rich guy, who's kind of a swindler, Zacchaeus, and said, I'm coming to your house. Let's have a relationship. And immediately Zacchaeus was transformed into a very generous person. He says, I give away everything I have to the poor. And if I've wronged anybody, I'll give it back fourfold. It changed a, a rich swindler jerk like Zacchaeus and made him a, a, a beautiful example of the transforming power of God's grace. When he met Jesus Christ, he became truly generous. This rich man became truly generous. So even if you're rich, <clears throat> if you know this God, this God who identifies himself with the poor, if you know this God through faith in Jesus Christ, then solidarity with the poor will determine your use of your wealth. That's what it'll do. Not just um, having your relationship with your wealth fixed, but why you would use it and why you would be generous with it. Why you would use it for the sake of others because of solidarity with them. Love for others. This is what happens when Jesus is at work in your life and he transforms you from the inside out. He makes you the kind of person who loves other people more than you want to hold on to your money. So love for others and, and justice, the desire for justice in their lives will shape the way that you think about money and how you use money. No matter how much money you make, no matter how little money you make, because of Jesus. So Paul <clears throat> closes up this passage and he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
there to do good, to be rich in good works. This is personal language, relational language. To be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That which is truly life. Um, <clears throat> this week was the, uh, the birthday of um, one of my best friend's sons. Uh, this, this guy I went to college with. Um, he discipled me. We've stayed connected. It's almost been 20 years now <laughs> since I've met this guy in college. That feels really weird to say. <clears throat> but um, he's got a son now who's turning 13 this week. And he asked me to... Uh, my friend did, asked me to write something and give him maybe a book or something. And so I'm trying to distill out what I'm thinking. It's like, if this is the most profound thing I ever say to this boy, as he enters his teens, as he becomes 13 years old, what's the most profound thing I could say that would fit on a card like that big? <clears throat> and, um, and this is what I said to him, and I think it's relevant to us, and maybe it's even uh, helpful for children around that age. Um, Maybe it's something that he'll need to hold on to and think about it later as he grows. But <clears throat> this is what I said to him. The heart of all life is the triune God. Since the one true God is three persons in blessed communion, Father, Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, all life is about relationships. The Christian's life will be on a trajectory toward unity and community. Not knowing Jesus means a life will be characterized by disunity and disintegration, which is no true life. In Christ, be about relationships. People matter. Pursue them. Don't look for reasons to avoid people or end relationships. Love your family, love your neighbors, love your enemies. That will be a good life. The only resource for a life like that is the life of Jesus Christ himself alive in you through his spirit. You've got him. So you've got everything you need. You've got him. So you've got everything you need to have a life that is true life, characterized by love for other people. Because people are what matters. Relationships are what matters. Because of who God is. True life consists in being rich toward God. It means having him as the heart's greatest desire. That means having him. So being content with everything that you have because you got him. It means being rich in love and relationships and good work done for love's sake. It means being generous and ready to share with others. Jesus Christ is yours. You've got everything you need for that. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, it seems too good to be true that um, we can have all of our hopes guaranteed to us, all of our cravings and desires and loves and affections met absolutely once and for all in you, that we can know it for certain because of the fact that you sent your son into the world to love us and to give himself for us, and that uh, through faith in him we can have real contentment no matter what our financial status through faith in him, we can have uh, true love for others in our hearts and, and be really generous and ready to share uh, no matter what our financial status. We pray that you would, uh, through our relationship with Christ and by your spirit, 
you would fix our hearts and minds on yourself in such a way that absolutely changes everything about the way that we perceive and feel connected to our wealth. We pray that for the sake of your kingdom and in Jesus' name. Amen.